If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicidal ideation murder, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Michael Mandel, Tyler Hadley's best friend, couldn't believe what he was seeing. At least 60 teenagers were crammed into the Hadley's Port St. Lucie home for an epic party. Things were out of control in the best way possible. Tyler, their 17-year-old host, had encouraged everyone to go wild. Kids were destroying furniture, smoking indoors, and selling drugs. Tyler came up to Michael and massaged his shoulders excitedly. With a smile, he told Michael it was a night with no adults and only one rule. No one was allowed in his parents' bedroom. The party sprawled from one end of the house to the other, from the garage to the backyard. Michael took a drink and walked into the living room, where a game of beer pong had been going on all night long. After a particularly strong throw, the ball bounced off the table and rolled onto the floor past Tyler's shoe. When Michael bent down to retrieve it, he noticed it had landed in sticky reddish-brown goo. He grimaced and took the ball over to the sink. As he rinsed it off with tap water, He wondered what Tyler's parents were going to think about all this. They were always so kind to him. He hated to see kids ruining their house. But then that was Tyler's problem, not Michael's. He tossed the clean ball back to the kids playing the game. He had no idea he had just rinsed off Mrs. Hadley's recently spilled blood. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. 
At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we talked about how 17-year-old Tyler Hadley's destructive behavior wreaked havoc on the Hadley household, as well as his depressive episodes. This week, we'll follow Tyler as his resentment towards his parents boils over and he throws a wild party. Then, we'll explore his arrest and the aftermath of his crimes. In 2011, 17-year-old Tyler Hadley was in trouble. He'd been skipping school, dealing drugs, and was even arrested for assault. His parents, who had always been in denial about his behavior, had finally started disciplining him, taking his phone and car privileges away. Unfortunately, their sudden attempts at strict parenting made Tyler furious. Eventually, on Saturday, July 16th, he decided there was only one way to free himself from his parents' rules. Tyler took a gulp of water and washed down two tablets of ecstasy. He closed his eyes, stealing his nerves. Then he shook out another pill and swallowed it. He could almost feel the drugs sizzling in his stomach. Tonight was going to be amazing. After tonight, he'd finally be free. He slowly walked to the garage, keeping his steps quiet. Then, Tyler pulled a hammer out of his father's toolbox and felt its weight in his hand, swinging it up and down a few times for practice. It would be over quickly. Tyler tucked the hammer up into his sleeve and walked into the living room where his mom, Mary Jo, sat working on the family computer. He stood silently behind her and watched her type, waiting for the drugs to fully kick in. As far as Tyler was concerned, Mary Jo deserved to die. She was worse than a cop, the way she tracked his every move. She needed to learn that you couldn't treat your kids that way. The last time he'd gone to a party, Mary Jo showed up and dragged him back home like a dog that had gotten loose from the yard. It was so embarrassing. Tyler felt his heart beating faster, his skin tingling, not sure if it was from the pills or the anticipation. Tonight, he was going to throw an epic rager with people who cared about him. He'd make sure no one was ordered around. He'd make sure everyone had fun. And there was nothing his mother could do about it. After watching his mother for five straight minutes, fuming about how she had treated him, Tyler was ready. She still hadn't even noticed him. He took a deep breath and prepared to strike. Before we continue with Tyler's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. As we covered last week, Tyler had long shown signs of destructive behavior indicative of someone with conduct disorder. This is a precursor to antisocial personality disorder. Kathleen M. Heidi, PhD, is a professor of criminology at the University of South Florida and the author of the book, 
understanding parricide when sons and daughters kill parents. Heidi said that the dangerously antisocial children kill their parents when they feel like the parent is keeping them from getting something that they want. These children have a pattern of violating the rights of others that can include violence towards people and animals, destruction of property, theft, and truancy. In Tyler's case, he felt his mother and father were keeping him from having fun and acting independently. On July 16, 2011, Tyler was ready to take any action to change that parental discipline. So, he pulled out the hammer, holding it with the claw end facing out. He took one step forward, then another, and swung hard. Mary Jo fell, but he didn't stop swinging. As she struggled to crawl away, his mother managed to scream. Why, Tyler? Mary Jo's screams brought Blake Hadley running into the room. Standing at six foot three and weighing over 300 pounds, Tyler's father could have easily overpowered his 160 pound son. But when confronted with the horror of what he saw in front of him, Mary Jo's bludgeoned and bloody body, Blake was paralyzed with fear. Father and son locked eyes with each other for a moment before the spell was broken. Blake snapped out of his daze and turned to run away. Tyler, hopped up on drugs and adrenaline, was too quick for his dad. He chased Blake into the master bedroom and brought the hammer down on his back. Blake fell down onto the bed. He tried to resist, but Tyler was caught in a murderous rage. Nothing could shake him off. Soon, he was standing over the lifeless body of his father. A deranged grin spread across his face. As he wondered how best to get rid of the bodies, Tyler's thoughts were interrupted by the growling of the Hadley's black lab, Sophie. The dog sensed something was amiss and ran up to the bedroom growling. Tyler locked her in the bathroom. The other family dog, a blind beagle named Molly, was relegated to the backyard. After the animals were taken care of, Tyler wrapped a towel around his mother's head and dragged her into the bedroom to lie beside her husband. He dropped the bloody hammer on the ground between them. Over the next three hours, Tyler worked to mop up the blood and stash away evidence in his parents' bedroom. When all was said and done, it looked even worse than before. With a heap of red-soaked towels, Clorox wipes, and a bloody mop thrown indiscriminately on top of the bodies. Tyler couldn't leave the room like that. What if someone walked in? He furiously grabbed stuff from around the house and tossed it on top of his parents' bodies. Picture frames, broken dishes, bags of dog food, the family coffee table, and anything else in his reach were all piled into the room. By hiding the bodies under a deluge of junk, Tyler could deny that the murders occurred. He may have been trying to undo the crime. Kurt and Anne Bartol discussed undoing in their book, Criminal and Behavioral Profiling, writing, Undoing is similar to staging, but it is less directed at steering police away from the facts of the incident and more directed at making the offender feel better about the offense. Very often, 
such an offender had a close relationship with the victim. After he was done hiding the bodies, Tyler took a shower. As the shock of the crime wore off and the three ecstasy tablets kicked in, Tyler, quote, stared at his reflection in the bathroom mirror, thought about what he had done, and laughed. At 8.15 p.m., about three hours after he murdered his parents, Tyler logged on to Facebook and announced that he was throwing a house party that night. This may have been another form of undoing. By inviting friends over to party, he could trick himself into a sense of normalcy and denial. Then, he grabbed his parents' wallets and headed for the bank. Tyler withdrew thousands of dollars from Blink and Mary Jo's checking accounts. He used some of that money to outfit the party with booze and pot and save the rest to fund his tentative escape plans afterward. The first party guest arrived that night around 10 p.m. Dressed in all black, Tyler stood off to the side and drank gin. When people asked him where his parents were, he offered varied responses. They were in Orlando. They were away visiting family. It didn't matter where they were. This was his house now. He encouraged everyone to do whatever they pleased. Soon, kids were smoking cigarettes inside, extinguishing the butts on furniture and squashing them into the carpet. They helped themselves to the contents of the kitchen, leaving dirty dishes and spills in their wake. Someone walked around with a plastic bag full of white pills that sold for a dollar each. Then, things got truly out of control. At one point, a shirtless guy ran into the living room, carrying the neighbor's mailbox. He'd stolen it right off the post. Everyone cheered and laughed at the prank, except for Tyler. He put down his gin and screamed at the boy. He demanded the kid return the mailbox before the cops came to the house. Tyler had been sullen and quiet all night, telling them to live it up, so his guests were shocked by the sudden explosion. They didn't realize he had a very real reason to want the police far away from the house. By 1 a.m., Tyler resumed his calm, detached pose. He approached his best friend, Michael Mandel, and said he wanted to talk. He'd done something stupid. The two boys headed outside to chat. Tyler didn't beat around the bush. Almost as soon as the two of them got outside, he whispered to Michael, I killed my parents. At first, Michael didn't believe him. Tyler loved to shock people and he assumed that this was just another one of his sick jokes. But Tyler persisted. He described every detail of the horrific crime and even demonstrated how he had swung the hammer. He also pointed out that both of his parents' cars were still parked in front of the house. That should prove to Michael that they weren't in Orlando. Tyler then told Michael he had come to a decision. He wasn't going to try and run. He had a plastic bag filled with Percocet pills and he was going to use them to kill himself when the police came to arrest him. Michael stood silent while the gravity of the situation sunk in. Without another word, Tyler simply put on a smile and went back inside to the party. Michael followed his friend back in disbelief. As they walked through the garage, Michael noticed a bloody shoe print. Tyler wasn't joking. He really had murdered 
his parents. Up next, Michael discovers the shocking truth and worries his own life may be in danger. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Now, back to the story. In the early hours of July 17, 2011, 17-year-old Tyler Hadley told his best friend, Michael Mandel, that he had murdered his parents. Michael assumed he was joking at first. After all, he and 60 other teenagers were partying at Tyler's house. He couldn't possibly have killed his parents and then thrown a rager just hours later. Could he? Michael had to know the truth. So when Tyler went up to his bedroom to smoke pot, Michael slipped away and started to investigate. He went over to the computer where kids were taking turns playing music on YouTube. Tyler had claimed that Mary Jo was sitting in the computer chair when he dealt his fatal blows. Sure enough, Michael saw reddish brown spatters around the desk legs and on the keyboard. His concern growing, Michael slipped outside and found the side door that led to the Hadley's master bedroom. Tyler had thrown so much trash into the room that it was hard for Michael to keep the door open, but he managed to push it hard enough to create a crack he could fit a hand through. Then, he pulled out his cell phone and used its flashlight to look around. After a few passes, the beam of light landed on Blake's legs sticking out from underneath the pile of junk. Michael felt the room spin as he realized it was all true. His best friend had butchered his own parents. Michael should have left the party and called the police immediately, but he just couldn't do it. If Tyler found out that Michael had turned him in, the consequences could be deadly. Tyler had already killed his own parents, so there was no reason to believe he would hesitate to kill his best friend too. But when Michael had a moment alone with Tyler, he did tell him he finally believed he'd done it. Michael said, quote, I guess you'll be going away for a while. Tyler just grinned. The boys decided to take a selfie to remember their last night together. Michael and Tyler glared at the lens, putting on their toughest faces. But once he got away from Tyler again, Michael found himself on the verge of a breakdown. He couldn't keep the horrific news to himself, so he went to one of his friends, Jesse Durier. He told him that Tyler might have killed his parents, but advised him not to tell anyone. Naturally, 
Jesse immediately told his girlfriend, Maggie. Soon, everyone was whispering about what Tyler might have done. Tyler also dropped a few hints to people that something terrible was going to happen to him soon. According to his friend, Kimberly Teben, Tyler told her that he'd be going away for 60 years. When she asked him why, Tyler said, you'll find out tomorrow. Before she got a straight answer from him, they were interrupted by a loud knock at the door. It was the cops. But they weren't here about a double murder. They were here on a noise complaint. By now, it was two in the morning and neighbors were annoyed by the party. When officers arrived, the partygoers hid while Tyler answered the door. According to police reports, Tyler was polite and respectful. He told them that the party had broken up and there would be no more issues. The officers were satisfied and left. While Tyler was distracted by the police, Michael took his chances and escaped out the back door. He ran to his house a few blocks away. Not wanting to alert his sleeping parents, Michael snuck inside, then padded up to his bedroom, closed the door, and locked it. Michael leaned against the door and tried to catch his breath. He was shaking. He couldn't believe what was happening. The image of Mr. Hadley's foot sticking out from under the pile of garbage was burned into his brain. He saw it every time he blinked. Michael forced himself to take deep gulps of air, trying to calm down. He knew he should call the police, but Tyler was his best friend. They had grown up together, and there was no telling how he would react if he found out Michael had ratted him out. After killing his parents, it would be nothing for Tyler to come after Michael too. But then, if Michael didn't call the cops, wouldn't that make him some kind of accessory to the murder? He laid down on his bed and gritted his teeth to stop himself from crying. It was all too much. After a few hours, Michael finally worked up enough nerve to call the police. At 4.24 a.m., Michael left a voicemail on an anonymous Crime Stoppers hotline with Tyler's name and address. He told them that Tyler confessed to murdering his parents and that he'd personally seen Blake's bloody leg. 15 minutes after Michael called Crime Stoppers, Tyler posted on Facebook. He wanted to throw another party, just like this one. No parents, no rules. For Tyler, however, the party was over. Just as he posted the new Facebook status, the police pulled up to his house. When officers arrived at 371 Northeast Granger Street, they could see Tyler through the window, pacing, talking to himself. They knocked on the door, but he didn't answer. They watched as Tyler picked up stacks of books and threw them into a bedroom. He yelled something unintelligible as he hurled each stack. Eventually, Tyler opened the door for the police and they put him in handcuffs. When they asked if his parents were home, he told them that they were visiting West Palm Beach. As the officers stepped inside, Tyler started screaming. They weren't allowed in his house. But the police continued their search based on Michael Mandel's tip. Almost immediately, 
they noticed a red stain on the doorframe of the Hadley's master bedroom. When they broke down the locked door, the police saw everything was just how Michael had described it on the Crime Stoppers hotline. They heard Sophie, the black lab scratching on the bathroom door. An officer had to wade through the mountain of junk to free her. The paramedics were called, but it was way too late. Mary Jo and Blake Hadley were long deceased. Tyler was taken away, still mumbling to himself quietly. Meanwhile, Tyler's 23-year-old brother, Ryan Hadley, paced around his North Carolina apartment, waiting for the phone to ring. He had heard from a family friend that his parents' house was surrounded by police cars. He had no idea what was going on and was desperate for word that everything was okay. Ryan's concerns immediately focused on his younger brother, Tyler. Their mom had always worried that Tyler might hurt himself. Maybe that's why no one was answering his calls. Tyler could be at the hospital or even dead. Then Ryan's phone rang, but it wasn't his family friend. It was a stranger. The woman on the other end of the line said that she was a victim's advocate and asked Ryan to sit down. Then, Ryan's world turned upside down. The stranger told him that his younger brother had murdered both of his parents. Ryan described the moment he received the news in his memoir, A Thousand Fireflies. He wrote, You'll never convince me that at that very moment, the air was not instantly sucked from the room. It took with it every bit of breath from my collapsing lungs with a pressure so strong, I thought my head would explode. It took Ryan a long time to collect his thoughts. He was filled with a confusing mixture of grief and anger. He didn't know what he was going to do, but threw his things in a suitcase and got on the next plane to Florida. Back in Port St. Lucie, news of Tyler's crime spread. CNN broadcasted sensational headlines about the twisted teenager who murdered his parents and then threw a lawless rager. Reporters pestered neighbors for anecdotes about the monster who lived next door. Soon, kids who had been at the house the night of the murders bragged on Facebook that they had attended the party of a lifetime. On Thursday, July 19th, 17-year-old Tyler was charged as an adult with two counts of second-degree murder. In his anonymous tip, Michael Mandel mentioned that Tyler had threatened to kill himself rather than be arrested. Because of this, Tyler was put on suicide watch in the medical ward. While Tyler was confined to a hospital bed, his family was busy planning funerals for Mary Jo and Blake. The Hadleys were buried on July 23rd, one week after their deaths. Because their sensational murders had made national news, nearly a thousand people gathered at St. Lucie Catholic Church to pay their respects. Ryan and the rest of the family managed to plan a beautiful service, even though they were badgered constantly by detectives and the press. Still, Ryan was more than overwhelmed with his new normal. He was young, unprepared to take charge of his parents' estate. The combination of constant stress and grief made him shake and weep. Adding to the difficulty 
Ryan was appointed as Tyler's legal guardian. Even though he was charged as an adult, 17-year-old Tyler was technically still a minor. It was all too much. He couldn't be responsible for the well-being of the person who had killed his parents. As he watched Mary Jo and Blake's coffins descend into the earth, he couldn't help but be revolted at the thought of his brother. After some soul-searching, he signed guardianship over to a cousin instead. Ryan also filed a civil complaint to block Tyler from receiving any inheritance from their parents' estate. He did all of this without seeing Tyler in person, but he knew eventually he would have to confront his brother. A few weeks after the murders, Ryan took a trip to visit Tyler at Rock Road, the local name for the St. Lucie Jail. Ryan couldn't get over the sight of his brother in chains and an orange prison jumpsuit. A few weeks ago, they were hanging out and watching Family Guy. Now, they were separated by a thick pane of glass. Ryan picked up the receiver and readied himself to hear Tyler's voice. Tyler refused to make eye contact with his brother. When he asked Ryan how he was doing, he didn't hold back. He gave Tyler a laundry list of all the awful things he had to deal with now that their parents were gone. Tyler tried to make light of it all with a joke. He said, you can come to jail and have biscuits and gravy. Ryan couldn't believe Tyler was so flippant. It was like he didn't even care. He was the reason for all of this heartache. There was no way they could just go back to their old carefree dynamic. Ryan tried to stifle his anger, but could feel his face burning whenever Tyler asked him a question. When Tyler asked about the fate of their family pets, for example, Ryan could only think about how Tyler had locked their dog Sophie in the bathroom while he dealt with their parents' bodies. Ever since then, Sophie was skittish, nervous, and never wanted to play. She was traumatized. After only five minutes, Ryan realized he couldn't sit there chatting any longer. As they said goodbye, Tyler told Ryan that he loved him. After a long pause, Ryan told Tyler that he loved him too. But Tyler could tell that he didn't really mean it. After the loss of both of his parents and now his brother, Tyler was desperate to find someone who still cared for him. While he waited for news about his pending trial, he wrote letters to his best friend, Michael Mandel. Tyler was unaware that Michael was the one who tipped off the police. He wrote missives about the good old days when they drank and smoked pot together. He was hopeful he'd be out in 20 years and they could be buddies again. Tyler also wrote to his family, especially to his maternal grandparents, Sam and Maggie DiVittorio. In his letters, he apologized for his actions and told him how grateful he was for their love and support. Maggie and Tyler had always been close and she believed that his letters showed that he could be rehabilitated. But the gentle persona Tyler displayed in his letters didn't match the behavior he showed in Rock Road. George Brown, Tyler's neighbor in the medical ward, reached out to the state prosecutors about the strange behavior he witnessed. Some inmates exchange information for a sentence reduction, but George wanted nothing in return for speaking up. 
He stated that he was creeped out by the things he heard Tyler say and just needed to tell somebody about it. When they had first met, George asked Tyler what he had done to wind up in jail. Tyler responded that he had hit them with a hammer. Then he burst out laughing. It took George a few more days to learn that the them Tyler was referring to was his parents. As time went on, Tyler began to reveal more about his crime. He told George that his parents had deserved it and he regretted nothing. He also told George about how his friend, Michael, had seen the bodies and how he'd wanted to show them to even more people at the party that night. George said the worst thing about Tyler was his incessant laughter. All day, Tyler could be heard cackling in his cell. As far as George was concerned, parasite was nothing to cackle about. Criminology researcher Robert D. Hare created the Hare Psychopathy Checklist to evaluate an individual's psychotic or antisocial tendencies. Hare said that inappropriate laughter is a common way to identify people with severe antisocial personality disorder. One sign of APD is a lack of empathy and remorse. Tyler appeared to be proud of what he had done and unable to comprehend the emotions of anyone outside of himself. On another occasion, George was allowed to leave the medical ward and walk around the prison. He saw Tyler's case being discussed on the news. When he later told Tyler that he had seen him on TV, Tyler replied coolly, Nice, ain't it? He felt no remorse, only pride. Coming up, Tyler continues to manipulate his family and friends. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Now, back to the story. On July 17, 2011, 17-year-old Tyler Hadley was arrested for murdering his parents. Fellow inmate George Brown reported to investigators that Tyler bragged about what he had done and constantly laughed to himself about his crimes. But while Tyler displayed this arrogant and jovial behavior in the medical ward, he wrote letters to his family expressing guilt and heartbreak for his actions. Many who had been close to Tyler still couldn't get their mind around what he had done. His best friend, Michael Mandel, was interviewed by the local news station about his experience after the murders. In the segment, Michael looked bewildered as he discussed his now notorious best friend. On camera, Michael said, I think he just threw a party because he knew he was going away and he wanted to see his friends one last time. 
I feel like this kid I've known all my life that I don't know him at all. When the video was uploaded to YouTube, suddenly people around the country knew that Michael was the best friend of a murderer. Everywhere he went, people badgered him with questions about the crime. Michael hated having to relive that horrible night over and over again. The harassment got so bad, he couldn't bear the thought of going back to St. Lucie High School for his senior year. Instead, his family tried homeschooling him. His anxiety only got worse. Every night, he'd wake up in a cold sweat, haunted by memories of blood spatters and Blake's lifeless leg jutting out of the junk pile. He also grew paranoid and suspicious of other people in his life and what they might be secretly capable of. In an interview with ABC News, Michael said, I have trust issues and I feel like I'll probably never fully trust any new stranger that I meet again. Michael's statements echo that of the wives of serial killers who had no idea they were married to monsters. Judith Mawson, the wife of the Green River Killer, described her marriage as a happy and blissful 13 years. She also expressed doubts that she'd be able to trust others in the future, especially men. Similarly, Paula Dietz, wife of the BTK killer, thought her husband was a good man and a great father. He would never hurt anyone. Unfortunately, Michael's anxieties were only about to increase. Now that he had spoken to the press multiple times, Tyler knew for certain who had ratted him out. Tyler wrote to Michael Mandel often, more than any of his family. Sometimes in a blatant attempt at manipulation, he'd write that he was glad his friend had turned him in. Now that he was behind bars, he could really rehabilitate himself. He said that he was sorry that his best friend had trouble sleeping at night because of what he'd done. Other times, Tyler told the truth. He felt betrayed. He begged Michael to stop going to the press and demanded to know why he snitched on him. At first, Michael left Tyler's many letters unanswered. Eventually though, Michael missed his friend and wrote him a couple of postcards. In one, he told Tyler more about his nightmares. Tyler responded by sharing his own anxieties. As the trial drew nearer, he was terrified by the prospect of being behind bars forever. He thought he could plead insanity and only serve 10 to 15 years, but it looked like there was little chance of a plea like that working. He was scared. Tyler didn't realize that his letters were being monitored until something he wrote to his grandparents was leaked to the press. Once he discovered this, he tried another manipulation tactic. Tyler wrote to all of his friends and family how desperately he wanted a plea deal. He told everyone that he was writing letters to God and after he got his GED, he wanted to become a priest, but his attempts were transparent and didn't bear much fruit. Life in Rock Road only got harder for Tyler. On December 16, 2011, Tyler turned 18. That day, he was transferred to the adult side of the prison. 
There, he befriended Justin Tony, a 23-year-old inmate who was fascinated by the details of Tyler's crime. He often asked questions about the murders, and Tyler was always happy to answer. For example, Justin asked if Blake and Mary Jo had tried to stop him during the attacks. Tyler replied, No, that's how I knew they loved me. According to Justin, Tyler autographed newspapers in the hopes that he could sell them on the outside. When Justin saw the papers, he was horrified to find that Tyler had drawn little hammers around his name and wrote, It's Hammer Time, in capital letters. That's when Justin decided he had to tell someone about Tyler, just like George Brown had done months earlier. He spoke with detectives and told them everything that Tyler said about the murders. Tyler Hadley finally got his day in court in early 2014. Now 20 years old, he had no idea how the majority of people saw him until the day of his trial. That morning, handcuffed and shackled, he shuffled into the courtroom with a meek expression on his face. Tyler had practiced his expression for days, To him, it signified the perfect mix of shame and guilt. He felt confident that once the jurors saw him looking so contrite, they would realize he wasn't dangerous. He had just made a mistake. No one was perfect, after all. As he neared his chair, Tyler looked up just long enough to see his extended family split up across the room. His maternal grandparents, Sam and Maggie DiVittorio, sat on the defense side. They were the only people in the world who still loved him, he thought. His letters had done the trick. They could still see the real Tyler, the one who deserved love. Now more than ever, he needed someone to tell him everything was all right. But not everyone was willing to give him that assurance. His brother Ryan, was sitting on the prosecution side with their Uncle Mike. Tyler hated Uncle Mike. On the anniversary of Mary Jo's birthday, Mike sent menacing postcards to him in prison. He was poisoning Ryan's mind against his own brother. Tyler didn't break his contrite expression, but inside, he fumed. He would show Uncle Mike and everyone else he wasn't a monster. He would get through this with or without the family members who were against him. He sat down quietly and focused on the table in front of him. He had to keep calm. On March 20th, 2014, 20-year-old Tyler Hadley was found guilty on both counts of first-degree murder. The judge, Robert Makemson, believed that Tyler acted selfishly and had manipulated psychological experts and family members in an attempt to orchestrate a better outcome. He was sentenced to serve two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Once Tyler's fate was decided, the rest of Blake and Mary Jo's loved ones tried to move on. With the help of counselor Dan Yurick, Ryan was able to come to terms with his brother's actions. In 2015, the pair wrote a book together about Ryan's recovery process called A Thousand Fireflies, Living in the Aftermath of My Parents' Murders. At the time of the book's publication, Ryan still hadn't visited Tyler in prison. 
Tyler's tragic story shows what can happen when mental illness goes untreated. Throughout his childhood, adults failed to notice that Tyler needed help. His obsession with death, his pattern of acting out, his low self-esteem and warped body image were all evidence that something immensely complicated was going on inside his head. Tyler even told his friends and family that he planned to kill himself and others, but nobody took him seriously. The signs were ignored and disaster occurred as a result. Now, it is only the survivors who have a chance to heal. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Tyler Hadley, amongst the many sources we used, we found See How Much You Love Me by Amber Hunt and A Thousand Fireflies by Ryan Hadley and Dan Urich extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Kate McCurr. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs> <laughs>